I saw James's uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's 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 rocked some since this morning. But. All right. Whoa. If we could make our way back to our seats. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Psalms chapter 1. And that's where we're going to find ourselves tonight as we continue our series in Psalms. Um, I'm going to let Tim come up and read for us, and then I'll open us up in prayer. Uh, we're our scripture reading tonight is Psalms 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, you have graciously given us uh, your word. God is this uh, objective source. God, this beautiful picture that we can come to, um, to see um, that, uh, as some have said, that scarlet thread that runs through the entire scriptures of, of, um, God foreshadowing and then bringing to fruition, um, and then showing us the outworkings of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to save us from our sin. Um, God, we thank you that, uh, that you have not left um, knowledge of yourself, um, up to, to the whims and the insights of, of individual men. Um, but God, that you have given us your word. Um, you have given us your own words about yourself. And so as we look to it, um, we see who you are, God. We see who we are. Um, we see what you have called us to. We see the life that you would call blessed. Um, and God, we, we see your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that as we study tonight, um, that you would bring all these things to bear on our hearts, um, that we would know you better because we were here tonight, that we would see you more clearly and that we would love you more truly. Uh, we thank you. Uh, we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So we begin or we end our, our, um, series, our summer series on the Psalms with the beginning Psalm, right? The first Psalm. Um, and that is Psalm chapter one. It begins with, with some key words. Blessed is the man. And so we've talked about before how that word blessed, um, which we see at various places throughout the scriptures, particularly, um, our, our thoughts are brought to the, to Jesus' first sermon that's recorded in the scriptures where he talks about, uh, we call it the Beatitudes, the blessed are statements. 
um, that Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew. Um, but the concept of the blessed life is something that runs all throughout Scripture. And we see over and over again. And blessed sort of, and I guess in a little bit of a way, maybe an intimidating term because it's not the way we typically talk um, oftentimes. But blessed just means happy. All right. It means but real happiness, right? Deep down happiness, um, something that we would probably say is more akin to joy um, and make that distinction between it and and an, and sort of a worldly idea of happiness, not happiness that is circumstantial, but happiness that that is deeply rooted in our lives. And, and here's the reality is everybody wants to be happy. Okay. Everybody, everywhere, wherever you go wants to be happy. It's really the driving force behind most of what you do in your entire life, even if you don't realize it up front. Um, you are a happiness junkie. Now, sometimes you mistake what happiness is, right? You think something will make you happy and you try to, to go after that thing and then you find out it doesn't make you happy. But at the end of the day, um, I think oftentimes or almost always happiness is the end goal. Certainly sometimes we defer current happiness for future happiness. And so we might make decisions in the short. Um, term that seem like they're not the things that will make us happy, but really happiness is still our goal. And it's, it's interesting because various sort of Christian philosophers throughout history have, have all commented on and, and referenced the fact that, that we're seeking after happiness. Lewis, uh, talks about it. Pascal talks about it. Jonathan Edwards talks about it, about this idea that, um, we are seeking after how to be truly happy. All the things that we see going on in our culture currently in terms of, of the sexual revolution and a different social mores changing or whatever, ultimately what those people are seeking for is some kind of happiness. They're trying to find some sort of meaning and, 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 um, joy in this life. Obviously we would say they are seeking it in all the wrong places, but it's interesting that everything revolves around that in one way or shape or no, one way or another. And Jesus isn't a killjoy, I don't think. Um, Jesus doesn't want you to be miserable. I say that um, pretty regularly. Jesus doesn't want you to just walk around and be miserable. Jesus is not here to steal your joy. Jesus is here to increase your joy, to give you life and life abundantly, okay? But what he wants is for you to actually find joy in the things that will actually bring you real, lasting, deep-down joy. And so we find passages like this and others in the scripture that start out and, and, and pose the question, blessed is the man. What does it look like to be a truly happy person? And so we begin that whole discussion in this passage in Psalm 1, a psalm that some people kind of see as a commentary on all the rest of the psalms in a way. But we see that blessedness, that happiness first posited to us from the negative. So it basically tells us what the blessed man doesn't do, what the blessed man is not. Verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So it begins with a negative, right? How not to live. And, and, and many commentators have noticed something in this passage, and probably you did too, just with the verbiage. There's a progression of those, of those 
postures, those stances, right? There's this person who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who stands, and then who sits. And so lots of commentators have, have noticed that and said, what is the significance of that? And I think there is a progression in terms of our posture against God, posture of the wicked against God. And so that's, he's saying, those who live this way will not find blessedness. He begins the first one that says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So if you walk in the counsel of the wicked, you will not be blessed. What do you think it signifies to walk in the counsel of the wicked? Well, I think if we, if we think there is a progression there, then it implies sort of almost a practical or a casual association with sin. You exist in the world of sin. And you look for the world to give you your cues, your best practices, your standards of behavior. It's almost like you're just going with the flow, okay? Um, probably some of us have been pulled over uh, for speeding at some point in your life. And maybe, I know I have done this, I have said, officer, I was just keeping up with traffic, right? Everybody else was doing the exact same thing I was, and you just happen to single me out and pull me over. Well, I think there's something here of that idea of the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked, right? He is going along with the way the world sees things, the way it values. But it doesn't end there. That's the key, is that we can sort of be drug along by a, a sinful world, but eventually that sinful world begins to have more an effect on us of just sort of pulling us along. Sooner or later, we find ourselves standing in the way of sinners, which is the second phrase. What is it, what's the significance there of the distinction between walking in the way of sinners and standing or, or walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners? I think now we are more fixed, right? A difference between walking and standing, firm, more confident in our opinions. We have taken a level of ownership at this point to the things and the advice and the values of the world. It's beginning now at this point to characterize our own stance. It's not just something that we sort of say, well, I'm just going to do what everybody else does. Now we begin to say these things to ourselves in our own head. This is what we believe. When we get into an argument with somebody or a discussion about something, we represent the point of the wicked. That's the distinction of standing in the way of sinners. But again, it doesn't end there. Sin and, and, uh, we could even talk about this in terms of worldview. It doesn't end in that way because all sin ultimately is a rebellion against God. And so it's never happy with simply making an affirmation about what it believes. What always ends up happening is what do we see in the last phrase? It sits in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers is a particular word, right? At this point, we, we can't just affirm sin anymore. We must also decry holiness. Okay. We can't just say, I think the right thing to do is this wicked thing. We now must say the good thing that someone else is saying to do is what is actually evil. It must be rejected. And more than that, because scoffers don't just reject. What do scoffers do? They mock. They deride. They make fun of this, this, uh, the, the, the godly position. It must not only approve of evil, but it has to hate good too. And so again, I think probably the case is that sadly we see this pattern 
all too often, not just out in the world, but in our own hearts. We not only affirm sinful ideas, but then we begin to lash out against those who oppose us with a different perspective. I was, I was reading uh, Charles Spurgeon's commentary, um, which is a cool volume. If you, you can find them all the time because in our culture today, people just get rid of them. Um, but he has this big two-volume set called The Treasury of David. And it's basically Spurgeon's commentary on all the Psalms. And that, man, it seems like every time I go to a used book sale, you can find somebody who's getting rid of the treasury of David. But it's a it's it's a great resource if you ever happen to see it. You can probably get it free online, but I want a big smelly book in my hand. Um, and so in the treasury of David, he talks about this. And, and, and man, Spurgeon, like, it's it's incredible, um, the, the, the bluntness of his language. Um, he speaks in a way that maybe we would not... Um, dare to oftentimes, but he says this, he says, the seat of the scoffer may be lofty, but it is very near to the gate of hell. Let us flee from it, for soon it shall be empty, and destruction shall swallow up the man that sits in there. That's the picture, right? This The, the person who, who uplifts himself against God and against the opinions of God, um, who mocks um, God, he may seem very exalted and lofty and untouchable for a while, um, but destruction, he's, he's right next to destruction, right? It is in his midst, and soon that seat will be empty. And so what does Spurgeon say? He says, flee from that. Don't ever allow yourself into the position where you are the kind of person who would begin to um, mock and deride the things of God. The man who walks and stands and sits with the wicked it's, t- it's telling us that person will not be blessed. They will not find happiness in those things. He has disconnected himself from the very thing that could make him happy, the source of blessedness. Lewis says it this way, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing, right? That's a great thing to keep in mind. Oftentimes, even as Christians, man, when we see somebody living in opposition to God, we say there's a little piece of our heart that says, well, you know what? I just want them to be happy. Like, and, and if they've chosen to go a different way, then man, I, I, you know, I'm not saying it's right, but I just want them to be happy. But here's the truth. They will not be happy. There is no happiness down that road because that road doesn't lead to God. And apart from God, there is no happiness. You can wish there was something else to breathe than air, but there's never going to be. The only thing there is to breathe is God. And if you want to be alive and happy, it has to be inside the life of God. And in the case of this passage, specifically zooming in to his presence, not physically exactly, but in his authoritative word. Okay. And that's where we're getting to. So then where do we find this blessedness? As, as New Testament believers, we know that this blessedness is found in Jesus Christ. But Christ mediated to us in this passage through the word. Okay, does that make sense? That we know the ultimate source of our, our blessedness is Jesus Christ, but we see Jesus Christ through the word, right? You don't know anything about Jesus or very little about Jesus apart from his word. You can sit there and talk about the Jesus that you have in your head, but if that is a Jesus that is different from the word, then, then it's a figment of your imagination. So he, he, he says, this is what it looks like not to be blessed, to walk, stand, and sit in the ways of the wicked. 
So then what is the, the opposite of that? What does it look like to be blessed? Where is our focus if we are going to be happy, truly happy? Verse 2, instead what do we do? We delight in the law of the Lord. And on his law we meditate day and night. So what does it mean to delight in the law? How can we delight in the law? Sort of an interesting thing, because if you've read the New Testament, it seems like the New Testament is often a little bit down on the law in some ways, right? Just to quote some places, the law brings about wrath. The one who sets aside the law dies. The letter of the law kills. The law is not faith. And our sinful passions are awakened by the law. The power of sin is the law. Those are all New Testament quotes, right? If you didn't know anything about the law and you just read a few sparse places in the New Testament, you would be like, boo on the law. Like, we don't want to have anything to do with that. How then can we delight in the law? With such damning critiques that we find in the New Testament, how can we ever look to the law with a word and use a word like delight in it? Well, the reason is, is this. It's not the promises and threats of the law to which we delight, but we recognize that the law is a function of God's character. The reason why the Bible says live in these ways, be this kind of person, these are good things, these are bad things, is because we recognize those represent a part of the character of God. That's what God looks like. It is represented in his law. We see his traits. We see what he loves. We see what he delights in. What we wish to see, what he wishes to see among his children, and kind of like we were talking about tonight in at, at our members meeting, what we wish to see in our own children. We delight in the law because the law in and of itself is good and holy and just and represents the character of God. And what else do we do? We It says we meditate on his law day and night. And by law, again, I mean the whole counsel of God, not just like technically the, the, the Torah or, or, or the, the Pentateuch or whatever, but the whole counsel of God. We're supposed to meditate on that. God's word is supposed to be our guide at all times. It is supposed to be the cloud that goes before us in the day and the fire that goes before us at night. And so we end up navigating all of life's trials. All of life's tribulations, every single day, our mind should, in all things, reflect back onto Jesus Christ in the word. What would the Lord have me to do? What does the word call me to do in this given moment? As we lay in our beds at night, it says the same thing. There's all kinds of things that keep us from sleeping. Ladies, probably more than men. Okay, if my conversations with women have had any indication of that, right? Um, some of you are up all night thinking, worrying, considering, asking questions about things. Do we meditate on the sorrows of our past? Do we meditate on the challenges of the present? Do we meditate on the worries of the future? Or do we meditate day and night on the word of God? Are we comforted with the word of God, his promises that we find therein? So this week, I, I mean, just as an example in my own life, this week was a particularly difficult pastoral week. And I won't go into the reasons for it, but there were several meetings um, that were heartbreaking. 
that I had over the course. And there were, there were more than one. Okay. And it seemed like they were all connected in ways, um, and, and had similar consequences in everyone. And, and they were heartbreaking. And I know at one level, there's nothing I can do about those things. And so I got home on one of the nights and Christy was in bed and she was already asleep. And I sort of came in and tried to get, you know, ready for bed as quietly as I could. And I laid down and, and I just laid there thinking, I don't have to do God. Like, I don't know what the answer to any of these things are with these people who I love and who they're, who are hurting in their lives. Um, and so I just prayed and I said, God, encourage me through your word. I'm going to think of the promises that you have in scripture of the good things that could come from this, of the way that you will remain faithful, even in the midst of sin and brokenness and all this stuff. Um, and I, I prayed those things and I thought on those things. I meditated on them day and night and then I went to sleep. And then guess what? About 4 a.m. I woke up wide awake, right? 4 a.m. wide awake. Now, I've learned in my own body that if I wake up that awake at that time of day, it's probably the case. I I would love to say it was something super spiritual. It's not. It means my alarm is going to go off in the next 10 minutes or so, right? Right. My body just got ahead of itself by a little and went, it's time to wake up. Um, but I woke up and my clock is far away from me and I, you know, I don't, I can't see it. I just wait for the alarm to go off. And so what I did, I said, I don't know what time it is, but I'm going to assume it's close to time. But immediately all those cares flooded back in, right? Like immediately I'm just like, uh, I'm overcome with, with the stuff that's gone on this week. And so what did I do? I took it back to God, um, and started thinking on his word and thinking of the things that he has promised in his word. Um, and, and I left it in God's hands and believed the promises that he has made in scripture, right? That's what it's talking about when it says to meditate on God's word day and night. And I'm not saying I do that every time. I probably sit there and lay awake worrying stupidly like, like many of us do. Um, but a life lived on the promises of God is what it's talking about when, when it says to, to delight in the law of the Lord, to meditate on those things. And those things are not drudgery, right? It is not a, it is not a life that God has put on us. That is, that is a hardship for us. It is a blessing and a joy and a blessedness to do those things. That's exactly what he says in the next, the next verse, this line about the blessings that come, you could say the blessings of the book, the blessings that come from, from delighting and meditating on God's word in verse three. He is like a tree. This is the man or woman who is who is delighting in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Those three pictures of prosperity that we see in that passage are repeated in, in Jeremiah chapter 17, a passage that's one of my favorite of the Old Testament where it says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Right? We see three pictures in both those passages, in Psalms 1 and Jeremiah 17. First, we see a picture of provision in that tree, right? The tree is planted by this stream of water. It never worries about that. Man, we have got all these trees that we have planted in our homesteading, 
endeavors, right? And we've planted these tree, fruit trees and we've planted these things and we have very quickly realized it's a lot of work to keep trees watered in a season of drought, right? A couple of weeks ago when we went through that, like three or four weeks of no rain, right? And we have all these little poor little trees just trying to survive. And it takes a lot of work every single day to get them water. And yet the picture here is to say, the man who is blessed because he meditates on the word of God, he's like a tree planted by water. He never has to worry about these things because the source of provision is always right next to him, right? All he has to do is stretch out his hands, stretch out his roots, and they access that provision that God has provided. Moreover, there's fruit in that life. Trees are made to bear fruit. That's what they're for. If a tree doesn't bear fruit, then it's just taking up space. They're not good for anything, the Bible would tell us, except to be thrown into the fire if they're not doing their job, which is to bear fruit. And yet the person who meditates on the word of God and is connected to it, he bears fruit in all seasons. The fruits of life are central to who we're supposed to be. Right. Again, going back to those passages that we read about God providing or planning good works ahead of time. Your life is to bear all kinds of good fruits for the kingdom of God. And yet when we are disconnected from the word of God, it's impossible for those fruits to come to fruition. And lastly, we see this picture of protection. It talks about that its leaves don't wither. It's always green. The sun beats down on the tree. We remember the parable of the four soils. Remember the, the, the plant that puts down some shallow roots and it sprouts up and it looks like it's on its way to growing into a full plant. And then what happens? The sun comes out and it cooks that plant and it withers and dies. And why? Because it didn't have any roots. Those roots go down into the word of God. All right, we used to have a t-shirt at Pleasant Grove. It's been a long, long time. Like this is probably back like Pfeiffer days or, 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 uh, or, or Kyle days or Ashley days. Um, but, but it was a picture of a tree, um, and its roots were going down. And at the very bottom, there was the Bible opened up and the roots were growing into the Bible. Um, that's the picture that we have in our head that for us to be protected from the trials of life. We have to have our roots going down deep into the word of God. So now, here's here's what I thought as I read this passage. We might say to ourselves, um, does anyone actually accomplish this? Does anyone actually live this way? Does anyone actually receive the provision, fruit, and protection that we see that delights in the law of the Lord like it's talking about, who meditates on it like this. Is there anybody that actually does that? Well, and we're right to be suspicious of it at a level because we don't do a very good job of it most of the time. But there is one who has done it, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the man, the blessed man who we are talking about in this passage, the ultimate blessed man. No one else has ever not walked, stand, stood, and sat with the wicked the way Jesus did. Nobody else fully delights in the word of God. No one else meditates on it the way Christ has. Nobody else has yielded the fruit from his faithfulness that Jesus has. No one else is evergreen 
the way Jesus is. No one else prospers in all things. All these passages are pointing us to Jesus. And so there's an important point to make that we've made before when we've talked about the Psalms, but we can particularly make here again. And that is, as we interpret the Psalms, it is useful for us to remember that in an ultimate sense, they're almost always talking about Jesus. Okay, the person they are calling us to be, the only person who's accomplished that is Jesus. The life that they, that seems like it is beyond us when we read them in the passages, it's Jesus' life. The faithfulness that seems out of reach to us, Jesus is the one who has accomplished these things, right? Even when we get to those Psalms that there's a righteous indignation in them, right? There's a call for punitive judgment on the world, right? You know those Psalms that you, you're reading them and all of a sudden it, it talks about God bringing down judgment and the psalmist calling down judgment on their enemies. And we read those and we immediately say, man, it feels weird for me to say those things because I need mercy as much as the people who I'm calling down judgment on. And the reason why is because it's true. You do need mercy as much as those people because the only person ultimately who can do those things and say those things at that level is is Jesus Christ himself. And so maybe it is true that while Jesus is the one who is perfect in righteousness and perfect, perfect in justice and perfect in faithfulness. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean though that the Psalms aren't for us. The songs belong to God's people, but maybe in a sense that almost like we inherit them from Jesus. That may be a little too nebulous idea or too, too fanciful an idea, but, but the Jesus, the Psalms are Jesus Psalms. And then we as his people, they are mediated to our experience because obviously they were written by David and other men. They were written in their own time and were true expressions of what they were going through and their uh, faith and their inability and their all these things that were going on, right? And so it's not wrong for us to see ourselves in the Psalms, right? It is good and right for us to do that. But ultimately, it is Jesus that we see in the Psalms. And so when we go to them, we still see what God has called us to, but we do that with a grace-grounded, cross-bought, spirit-filled reading of those those psalms, right? We don't come to them as as those who are perfectly righteous. We come to those um, who know that our righteousness is found in Jesus Christ, okay? And again, sometimes it's easier for us to see ourselves among the wicked, but the blessings that come through the people of the book or to the people of the book are not there for for the wicked. And we see that in this next section. Verse four and five, the wicked are not so. They're not like that. Those things that we just listed, they're not like that. But instead, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked find a life that is opposite to the blessings of those who are devoted to his word. There's a kind of parallelism that goes on in this passage. The blessings of the, of the, of those who delight in the law of the Lord are contrasted against the curses of the wicked. So the first thing that we notice there is what? The wicked are not like, they don't bear fruit. They are like chaff. Those who live apart from God's word are, live lives that are like chaff. If you don't know what chaff is, chaff is like husk. Okay. It is the leftover. 
Okay, in terms of like wheat, when we when they would harvest wheat and they would process the wheat and beat it, there's this outer shell that is not good for anything really. And they would they would take the shovels and they would put them in the ground and they would throw the wheat up into the air and the wind would catch that useless chaff and blow it away and the seeds, the grains would fall to the ground. And the picture here is that the wicked, their lives are like chaff, the things they seek after are useless. They're good for nothing. They're not even really good for bedding or fuel or anything. While the kernel is sought and saved, the chaff is useless and forgotten. So again, imagine the picture there, a, a life that is chaff. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a horrific thing to think. A life that at the end of the day is has had no impact on anything, has been worthless, has floated away. The sad thing is that is true of many, and it is true of the wicked, those who have who have decided to define their lives apart from the word of God. Moreover, not only is the, the parallel between fruit and chaff, but the parallel between protection that the righteous find and judgment that the wicked find. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. There's that word stand again. They may have stood defiant before, affirming their sin during their own life, but they won't stand at the judgment. I think there are those who probably feel as though they will stand at the judgment. To listen to the way the the defiant against God talk, man, you would think that they're going to give God an earful on the day of judgment, right? They're going to get a chance to 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 sell their case and to put God in his place. But that's not how it's going to happen. You won't do that. On that day, your certainty will melt like wax before the gaze of God. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. And you will not stand at the judgment. You will kneel at the judgment, as all people will. And so we find that there is no protection for the wicked, but only judgment. And lastly, there is no provision for them either, but only exile. They will not sit, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. There will be a separation at the end. There will be a place of provision for those who have Turn to God and his word, and there will be a place of exile for those who have not. Just as Jesus tells us that one day the goats and the sheep will be separated, the wheat and the tares will be separated, just like our confessional statement says. On that day, the day of judgment, there will be a solemn separation will take place, that the wicked will be a judge to endless punishment, that the righteous to endless joy, endless blessedness, and that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. Not a righteousness that we find in ourselves, but a righteousness that we find in God and in his word. And so the the passage closes with verse 6. And it says this, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay? There's... There's something about it that we could read this passage 
And we could sort of think, oh, this is a passage about consequences, right? If, if you follow God faithfully, good things happen to you. If you, follow God, if you don't follow God, bad things happen to you. And there is a sense in which there are consequences there, but it's more than that. Because notice it says the Lord knows the way of the righteous, okay? These things don't happen by accident. They're not automatic. They are a function of a loving, faithful God who cares about your life, who sees you and is working in you and brings those things of blessing into your life. They're not just automatic. Um, it is because of a personal loving God who is working in these things. So not just intrinsic consequences, but a divine administration, a God who brings blessing to the righteous and to, and judgment to the wicked. So here's, here's how I want to close tonight because again, um, we're, we, we talked about it in a business meeting tonight. We are trying to, to readjust when it comes to our, um, small groups. Okay. Um, and one of the things that, that we are trying to zoom in on is having our church as a church, um, being in the word, preferably, being in the word in the same place as an entire congregation, right? Reading through his word together, meditating on his word together, delighting in his law together, having these things working in our own hearts and our own situations and the situations of our brothers and sisters in the congregation and all being on the same page about those things, okay? And then bringing those things to bear in terms of small groups. Okay, so again, not a, not a problem to to have a study in a small group or read a book in a small group or something like that, but to zoom in and make it a little more basic in a sense and yet a little more foundational and to say we are going to, as a church, focus on the word of God um, and let it work amongst us, all right? Um, we typically kind of have these emphases uh, around New Year's, okay? You may remember we, we sometimes do that because that's the time that a lot of people start a new Bible plan or they, they sort of, you know, make some kind of resolution that they're going to read their Bible more consistently this year. But but we're just going to say, we're going to worry about the end of the year. We're just going to start it now because the truth is there's no time better than the present to engage in God's word and connect to it, right? We don't need to wait for imaginary holidays. Um, we don't have to, 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 to make some sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, professions about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and New Year's resolution type things. We just need to get to work, right? We just need to open God's word, um, read it, know it, learn it, share with it, meditate on it, and delight in it. And so um, in, the, in the coming weeks, we're going to start kind of zooming in. And, and, and obviously, you may have some other things, other uh, devotional tools in your life. And so we're not trying to push those out. But we are going to try to unify around the same areas of Scripture every week. And we'll, we'll kind of inform you more about that um, as we go throughout um, the week or the next couple of weeks. Um, but I want to encourage you in that this whole Psalm. And part of the reason why I picked this Psalm is because those things were also heavy on my heart, right? We had talked about small groups at last members meeting. Um, we wanted to zoom in on these things. And I thought what better passage, um, to talk about the significance of the, of the word of God, of delighting in his word and meditating on God's word than, than the, the first Psalm, Psalm chapter one. So as we go to the Lord in prayer, what I would ask is that we would pray that God would do just that, that he would use his word to shape us in the image of Jesus Christ, that he would use his word to make us delight in it, 
to give us almost to think in in the opposite ways, right? Um, that we would be people who um, didn't just casually walk in the ways of God. We didn't just say, well, I just, people in my church do one thing and I just sort of go with the flow or whatever. That's not the way we want to be. We want to be people who stand on the word of God, who have taken these things in um, and believe in them in ourselves. And, and maybe not to say that we would be scoffers of the world, but there's a sense in which we are. Okay. There's a sense in which we look to the world and say, world, you are foolish. Um, you are fools for what you are doing and thinking because they will not lead to your happiness. They will only lead to your destruction. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask that God would bless our congregation in these ways, bless our individual lives and study in these ways, and that he would use his word to shape his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Um, God, we thank you for the fact that uh, we could we could study um, this book, um, that we could mine its depths for our lives and for a hundred lifetimes, and that we would not come to the bottom of it. Um, God, that you have um, God, that you have put a universe of of knowledge of you and your son. Um, in your word. And so we ask that we would begin the task, um, God, that we would begin to mine um, the, the treasures that you have for us there. God, that we would make the reading and the study of your word a regular part of our daily lives. God, that we would talk about your word um, with friends. God, that we would exalt, that our joys would not be in the things of the world primarily, God, but our joys would be in the truths that we find um, in your word. God, that we would meditate on these things, that they would be our hope in times of difficulty, that they would be our security and our strength as we go through various trials and tribulations. God, that um, when we have those sleepless nights where our cares are heavy on us, God, that we would continually be drawn back to your word and what it says and, and what it calls us to. Um, God, help us to be people of the book. God, as, as um, John Bunyan has said, that if you were to prick us, that we would bleed Bible. God, that's what we ask of our own lives, that we would be so connected to your word that it would characterize every aspect of our lives. God, I pray that for myself. I pray that for my family. I pray that for my church. God, I pray that for this world um, that desperately needs to hear your truth. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the close of song.
to make an announcement. I'm going to ask these people to come um, stand up here for a moment. You don't have to say anything, um, so don't get nervous. Um, but Janessa Moore, uh, Taylor and Rachel Schof, and then Ryan and Katie Kirst also, they are not here tonight because apparently a pipe burst in their apartment and it was flooding everywhere right before it was church time. And so they kind of had to stop and figure that out before they came to church tonight. Um, but uh, all five of these people um, have uh, applied for membership in our church. Uh, they've gone through our uh, membership class. They've been interviewed by myself. Um, they have affirmed um, our confessional statements. Um, they have uh, told us their testimony, uh, their understanding of the gospel, and how they have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And so um, what we're going to do is um, we've got we've got 
four members and then a contingent member. So we're going to take Taylor to the river in a couple of weeks um, and we're going to get baptized. Um, and so um, that's going to happen. We're going to talk about that and kind of figure some things out and, and, and do that in a few weeks, probably before it gets cold because the river is a lot more fun when it's hot. And, um, and then, um, for the other four, they have all, um, uh, been voted in, um, during our, uh, members meeting tonight. Taylor has also, um, contingent upon his baptism. And so, um, what I would encourage you to do is, is welcome our three new members and two who you will see, I'm sure next week. Um, tell them you're um, excited to have them as part of our congregation, recognizing the responsibilities that we have for each other. As people come into our congregation, we are taking um, responsibility for their spiritual lives. Okay, We are saying that we will be there um, to, to comfort you in times of difficulty, to rejoice with you in times of trial, um, to point you towards Jesus Christ at all times to um, uh, admonish you um, when you need to hear a difficult word um, and and to to walk this life uh, as we follow Christ together, okay? So as we close, um, yeah, I want you to come up and sort of just encourage them and say, hey, good to officially have you. All five of them have been coming to our church for, for a while. Um, and so Janessa was kind of like going, what the heck? I've been here for a long time and we just haven't gotten around to doing this thing yet. So, so that was on me. Um, but, but excited and, and glad to have y'all, um, officially as part of our church. Here's this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.
Dining room tables around the corner. Yeah. I mean, well, you're right. I'm just asking you, y'all, this is a better for everybody. I'm 